Welcome to The Meg Robinson Show, exploring the stories that make us who we are. I'm your host, Meg Robinson. This is part three of a four-part series entitled Diary of an FBI Agent, and now, Inside the Tragedy at Waco. So Oklahoma City was my office of preference, and I was reassigned to Oklahoma City in 1991. And I was assigned once again to a violent crime squad, so I was working bank robberies, kidnappings, uh, and then there I also worked fugitives on the same squad. So I was on the SWAT team in Oklahoma City, and we were a regional SWAT team there. Um, And as a regional SWAT team, we were responsible for... uh, Oklahoma, essentially, and and then help out in some of the surrounding areas if there was a tactical situation the FBI was involved in. So on February 23rd of, of 1993, and that was a Sunday, I was out at my house in Cashin, Oklahoma, and we had a, a little acreage out there, so uh, that was a, also a way to be able to kind of decompress out mowing the yard because it's it's mindless activity and you can just get on a mower and you can go. Well, I'm on the mower and my son yelled out um, to me. So I turn off the mower and he says, um, Scotty's on the phone. Well, Scotty was a deputy sheriff that I worked with on a fugitive task force. And so we'd become partners or we were partners and become very, very good friends Scotty says, "Um, uh, did you see that four federal agents were killed in Waco, Texas? And I said, "Uh, were they FBI agents? He said, I don't know, but it's on the television right now. And he said, I thought you might want to know. So immediately I turned on the television and there were already the, the video feeds that were coming from Waco and that four ATF agents had been killed. Um, and it was an it was an incredible gun battle there at Waco because it 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 had lasted. And it was actually one of the longest law enforcement uh, gun battles in the history of the country. Can you give some background leading up to the gun battle? The Branch Davidian is a is a sect or a branch uh, of the Seventh Day Adventists, and this particular branch was founded in the 1930s, and at some point after it had been founded, it was founded out in California, a guy moves out to Waco, the, the founder, and basically he, had, he builds a, uh, a compound. Mm-hmm. So there's housing, there's, there's a chapel, there's, and that's where the Branch Davidians uh, worshipped. Mm-hmm. Well, in, in 1983, there was... Uh, um, a, a woman who was the prophet, and there was probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 or so Davidians that were living there. And David Koresh, uh, Vernon Howell was his name. And Vernon Howell is uh, he's a aspiring rock star. He wanted to be a rock star. He's a musician. Had an incredibly difficult childhood. He was born his uh, from uh, his mother was 15 years old when he was born. And had he had a, a stepfather that was, you know, that burned his feet. And, I mean, he had this incredibly tough childhood. And when I mentioned earlier that what I think is so very important about identity, 
Um, people seeking identity can gravitate towards all kinds of things. And, and they're, they're looking and they're searching and they're seeking to try to figure out an identity, their identity, an identity that they can adopt. And I saw from this Vernon Howell, that kind of person who was seeking that an identity, seeking a place to go, a place to be, a place to be accepted. But as a child, he started going to to church, and he was and became a, a, a biblical scholar essentially because he's studying the Bible, studying the Bible, going to church, and that that probably was kind of his safe place. In 1983, he gets to, and we call it Waco. The the it's actually Mount Carmel, and it's and it's 13 miles uh, from Waco. But he gets there, and then um, what ends up happening is he ends up in armed conflict, a little shootout with the prophet's son, who thought he should have been the the next prophet because she had elevated uh, Vernon Howell to the position of pastor or took over the kind of the congregation so he became the prophet and this gun battle ensued he was arrested acquitted uh, and then he essentially was the prophet later became David Koresh because the name has some um, biblical connotations so then later in this process he started traveling around and recruiting people so it was kind of an international contingent. I mean, they had people from various places in the world that were there, and they, they as his recruitment effort was taking place, they probably were somewhere in the neighborhood, maybe 100 folks or so that were uh, living and worshiping out there at this compound, and he was the leader. And at some point during this process, he decided that um, all the men that were there had to be celibate, mm -hmm. except for him. So their wives became his wives. Mm -hmm. And so he then was having sex with um, the women in the compound um, and had sex with um, girls as young as 12 years old, mm -hmm. fathered over 20 children, uh, and some with girls as young as 14 years old. So... In essence, he was a sexual predator. Of course, yeah. But he was um, probably, like a lot of these folks are, very um, dynamic and charismatic, um, where people were willing to follow him because they're, they're searching and seeking their identity. And this seemed to fit their wants and desires for an identity. And there's this very charismatic leader who is leading him and he's a prophet and in his prophecy that it was a pro it was a prophecy of doom that they're going to be consumed by fire um, and that at some point they're going to need to defend themselves so and as david koresh is um, the the prophet and he's his prophecy is is that of doom and that at some point they're going to be um, attacked by the the government and they're going to have to defend themselves. So they started acquiring firearms and, and ammunition. And some of that, too, they used for, for sale. They were selling and, and, and making money to continue to run the compound as well. And it was a, a UPS uh, driver who told his wife, he said, you know, I'm at work today and I'm delivering this box and a box breaks open and it's got grenades in it, hand grenades. 
and he said, I've been, I've been transporting um, boxes that started out um, smaller and lighter, and now I'm bringing boxes out there that are heavy uh, and they're big, and I know they're, they've got firearms in them. So his wife went to ATF. Then he ended up talking to ATF. That's interesting. ATF opened up a, an investigation and later kind of an undercover investigation that probably wasn't so undercover that it wasn't recognized. ATF is the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. But this thing is now unfolding, and, and as it unfolds, uh, Koresh... Um, and and he believes himself the 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 son of 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 Christ that he believes himself to be the, the modern day Jesus is telling people they've got to, we've got to prepare we've got to prepare um, and this is what leads up to this thing ATF is now investigating these uh, these illegal um, allegedly illegal arms that might be there at the compound they get a search warrant well they recognize that this is on a 77 acre uh, very rural compound that they're going to need a lot of agents and so they get a lot of agents and the day that they are on February 28th that, that that's the day of the raid as they're um, preparing themselves there they have um, stock trailers basically kind of the Trojan horse kind of a, of a thing that that it's in a rural area that's not uncommon to see um, pickup trucks with stock trailers and, and a lot of the agents were uh, transported in there and pickup trucks with stock trailers on the back. Mm -hmm. They roll up on it, but um, there was a reporter that somehow had gotten wind of this thing, and he had stopped a postal worker and said, hey, I'm trying to find the Branch Davidian compound. There's going to be an ATF raid there today. Well, that postal uh, mail delivery person was actually a brother-in-law uh, or, or some relative to somebody there at the compound. He called him right away and said, the ATF's coming. So they already knew it was coming. And uh, there's so much controversy about ATF, uh, the, the raid. Should they have raided a place? Is there so much Monday morning quarterbacking, second-guessing, conspiracy theories, and so on and so forth? Who fired the first shot? Why did the shots get fired? At the end of the day, shots were fired. Uh, there were um, five Davidians that were killed in that in that initial gun battle. There were four ATF agents killed, uh, about 20 wounded. And then later, um, one of the Davidians is coming home from work, and he and the ATF says that they that he drew a weapon on him and they they shot and killed him, and he was there in a in a ditch. So what did you? know about all of this history as you and the other SWAT team members were driving down from Oklahoma City? So this is the this is the part that's that is interesting and it's uh, and it's interesting as I get uh, to talking about and and recollection because my recollection of, of this whole thing is just my personal recollection there's so much more that you can get on the internet and you can find all right. kinds of information but from my personal recollection, when when we left Oklahoma City, the information was is that this is a cult compound. There's a cult leader, and that this cult had engaged the the alcohol, tobacco, and firearms agents in a firefight 
a dramatic firefight, two hours and something firefight to the point where ATF was actually running out of ammunition. And so we, we, that's what we recognize is that we're going into uh, potentially armed conflict with this cult in this compound. But what was your mission? Our mission was completely uh, undefined as we were heading towards okay. Waco. We had no real idea what we were going to do, except for we believed that we would, on the front end of it, you considering the circumstances, we believe that we were going to be somehow engaged in um, whatever's going to happen next, whether it's going to be going in there and arresting people, whether there's going to be a raid. We don't, we don't know. It's a, for us, it's a, it's a faceless compound. We don't know the people in there. We don't know the makeup of the people. We don't know any, really a whole lot about the people. Now that's just us, our team. I understand. But you, you, and you didn't have really an understanding of how that gun battle came to be, right? You just no. know there was this exchange of there were serving fire and yeah. That we knew that there were federal agents that were serving a lawful search warrant and four of them were killed. So that was kind of the information that we had. So when we get there, we we're ready to be engaged in a mission. Let's go back to your being at home you get a call from your friend Scotty who tells you what's going on. What do you do next? So Scotty calls and says that that's going on. I turn on the television. So I immediately um, gathered up uh, clothes, put them in the laundry, uh, went out to my car, pulled out my SWAT gear bags, and started going through a mental checklists and checking off all the things that I had, all the things I might need, um, cleaning my firearms at M16. I had a shotgun and I had a pistol. So I cleaned my firearms and made sure I had fresh ammunition loaded in everything. And as, I, as I'm working through these mental checklists, what things might I need if I get called up? As I was into that process, I got called and I said, you need to be down to the office and within the hour and you guys are going to Waco. Okay. Let me just add something though. You're in Oklahoma City and how far away? was Waco. I think Waco was about four and a half hours away, possibly. And is that Was that in your jurisdiction at that point? Waco wasn't in our jurisdiction, no. but I knew that something that big uh, had occurred that they'd be likely calling on all the surrounding okay. SWAT teams to show up down there. And okay. sure enough, that was the case. Mm-hmm. They'd called on, on and were bringing hundreds of FBI agents into, into Waco. Mm-hmm. So as I'm, I'm going through these, these um, mental checklists, and, and one of the things <laughs> to this day I still find um, um, kind of funny is that I, I knew that I would need a pillow and a sleeping bag. And I loaded up and packed a pillow and sleeping bag along with all the rest of my gear. So I, I, after I go through these checklists, I've got clean laundry. What, what might I need down there? It's February. Um, if this extends into March, it could be cold, it could be rainy, so I want to make sure and have rain gear, I want to have this, that. So I went through this whole process of preparation, and then I was... I'm just amazed that you did your laundry. <laughs> I mean, laundry would not be the first thing I would think of, but go ahead. So I've got everything that I think I need, and I head down to the office. Then we go through, our SWAT team goes through checklists of gathering up equipment and gear that we might need 
trying to think through this whole process. Um, and we had an old motorhome that had been seized from a drug dealer. And it was one of those, I don't know, 30 some feet. Um, and it was, uh, 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 it was just a monster. And it was, a like a 1970 something probably cause I had shag carpet in it and the whole thing is crazy thing. But so it's heading, it's, it's leading up this, uh, this line of, of cars, uh, with SWAT agents from Oklahoma city pouring down rain and I'm the first car right behind this motorhome and this guy's driving it way faster than it was ever designed to go and it's I can still see it, it was, it's rocking in this rain and the wind and the rain is coming off of that thing and swirling around on a car and it's hard to see and but we're racing down there and wait a minute why why was the motorhome used because that was going to be um basically our little command post because okay. we don't really okay. know what we're rolling into so we have our little command post and we have um, all of our gear and most of our gear is loaded into the the motorhome okay so we're racing down to Waco and our 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 only context is what we've just seen on television where these agents are and, and there was one really dramatic shot where this agent is on the rooftop Roof. and the rounds are coming through and he's getting shot at and he tumbles off. Well, we kind of, that's, that's sort of our context of, of coming into this thing. So in the drive down there, once again, it's all about checklists. And I have mental checklists. So I'm thinking about cover, concealment, camouflage. I'm thinking about um, trigger pull. I'm thinking about sight picture. I'm thinking about field of fire. I'm thinking about muzzle control. I'm thinking about all the things that I learned in the FBI Academy. Because you want to have all of those things fresh in your mind when you're going to something like that. So checklists, then checklists create focus. And you have to have a very tight focus on, on what's going on so that you feel like you're prepared. How many agents went? How many, uh, how many SWAT team members went from um, Oklahoma City? From Oklahoma City, I believe we had um, somewhere right around 20. Okay, and was there someone in charge of sort of orchestrating, putting all of this together? Um, we had a our, we had a SWAT team leader, and mm-hmm. a SWAT team leader is is the guy that he. I mean, he's of command of these twenty folks that are heading down to Waco. So we're racing down there, and we get down there, and and in the, in the middle of the night, well, we're ready to go do whatever we got to do, whatever that might be. And we're in contact uh, with uh, um, the the leadership that's the FBI leadership that's there, and they're you know still in the process of creating command posts and infrastructure and doing all of those things. So they told us to go get a motel room and and rest. And you're thinking to yourself, seriously, we're going to go sleep after this adrenaline high of racing down there and ready to go to battle or whatever that was that we're going to be called on to do. So we end up getting a motel room, and the next day we're out there, and and some guys, uh, that those that didn't think to bring pillows, they brought uh, Nerf footballs and footballs. So we're out in the parking lot just throwing footballs around during the day because we have nothing else to do as we're waiting to be deployed because we don't know what this deployment looks like. And it turns out we go through day one being there. So this happened on February 28th. And then we're, and we're going into this thing and thinking, well, we need to be, we, why aren't they doing something with us? 
eventually we go out to this big airplane hangar and it's there's hundreds of FBI agents there. There's um, Department of Public Safety officers from uh, the Texas Department of Public Safety officers. And there's a, a guy up on kind of a dais and, and, and there's weaponry and I mean, it, you know, there's all this stuff in this hangar and you can just feel the energy from, you know, all of these these SWAT team members and these law enforcement officers. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to do something. And this guy's up there and he's talking and he's then he's giving us some of the background, talking about uh, the Branch Davidians and, and how they formed up and, and who they were and the makeup of the, the folks in the compound, that there were... Um, children in a compound something like 40 something children at that point and how many people were in there and that they were armed they had um at least two 50 caliber barretts which is what's a barret a 50 50 caliber is a is a big round and it's they're devastating so i mean they'll shoot through brick walls they'll shoot through um some armament even on tank armament i mean it's a and and for and they're sniper rifles for, for their long distance. I mean, if you were to get hit with a 50 caliber round, I mean, you're going to go into pieces. Yeah. Um, it's a devastating round. Let, let me just uh, pause for just a minute to ask you this. So when you're in this hangar, how does the timing of that relate to the ATF shootout that was going on? Had that ended, that particular So as battle? that... Sh- the the ATF shootout uh, lasted two hours and something maybe it was a, as I recall it was it was a it was a long gun battle, then there was a truce, and the Davidians said okay you can gather up your dead and wounded, uh, you know we're let's, there's a truce and it was a it was a mutual mutually agreed uh, truce, so that the ATF agents were moving out of there uh, hauling their the, the the four dead and, and the twenty something wounded very dramatic scene very dramatic scene and then the 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 Davidians now I mean you clearly you know they've got to be in shock that this thing has escalated to this point so they're probably regrouping and trying to figure it out Mm -hmm. meanwhile we're all in a hangar miles away from there figuring out what comes next well so is ATF out of the picture now so ATF um, they are having to hold the perimeter so they, they're having to essentially, because now you have a compound full of people who were almost immediately after this happened were charged with murder, the murder of these four agents. So now everybody in there is, uh, with exception of the children, are, are um, they're not exactly fugitives, but they're, they're all wanted, they're all or, wanted yeah. persons. They're, yeah. all, they're all named in arrest warrants. So ATF is holding this perimeter, and these guys had been in this horrific gun battle. As we're in this hangar, and this is kind of important, um, is that we're all these hundreds of folks, different badges, different positions, different missions in the FBI, but it's as if we are absolutely all one. We're tied at the hip. We are one working unit. And that's really important at this point to be thinking about because we'll talk about this a little bit in a little bit. But it wasn't until um, on, on, on March the 1st 
that uh, because there was an indication that he that uh, that the Davidians had explosives planted around the perimeter and around the compound. So the, so we waited until there were tanks that were brought in from Fort Hood and they're Bradley fighting vehicles. Yeah. And they asked who had experience driving a tank and I'd driven heavy equipment and and they did mention a fact that the that a Bradley fighting vehicle uh, driver's compartment was was staying a direct hit from a 50 caliber. Not saying that's the only thing I was thinking about, but I raised my hand. I said, uh, and I'm thinking to myself, if you know, if an if a uh, 18, 19 year old kid can drive one of these things, surely a college educated FBI agent can drive one. But you hadn't driven. I'd one. never driven a tank. But um, did they know that? No, in fact, probably most of the hands that got raised in there that they were nobody had ever driven a tank. So we then were those of us that had raised our hand and said, you know, we had some experience with heavy equipment, uh, track vehicles. We went and there were some, these Bradleys were on trucks, flatbeds, and there were uh, military personnel that then showed us how to drive them. And we had a 15 minute lesson on how to drive a Bradley fighting vehicle. And that was it. So then we waited for our mission, and our mission was to uh, be a, a, a medical evacuation unit. And that what that meant was is we would, if there was, um, if somebody was wounded, if somebody was injured, whether they be a, a law enforcement or um, a Davidian, then we would race in there and drop the, the heavy ramp on the back and load them up into the tank offer first aid, and then get them to uh, an aid station that was already um, put together out there. But that first day, um, there's school, but there, there's military buses out there. And the expectation that very first day was that for us, it was going to be over before we even were involved because there's a promise that, that they're all coming out. And the buses were all ready for Koresh them to come out. had said that. Well, there there was, uh, and I don't know who said it, but there was the, the indication was that they were going to come out, and then we were only going to be able to just oversee that that whole thing because they're all going to get arrested except the children. But twenty something children in the early days of this thing, twenty something children were released, and then there were um, people released till there was probably about eighty something folks that were left um, in the compound. Over and over, they kept breaking um, the, the promises. I said, promise they're going to come out. They're going to do. And it, and it just, so then it turned into 51 days. We took over from the ATF, and I'll never forget this. Uh, we talked to this guy who, and and you could just see that that he was just weary to the bone, and he had a a, a bullet wound on his neck where it grazed the side of his neck. On his Kevlar helmet, there was uh, a round that hit his helmet. So here's a guy that actually been—I mean, this guy had been shot, and he was still out there for. Um, almost almost two days still protecting the perimeter of this place. And what was your, what were you thinking and feeling at this point? It was, uh, it was very hard to, 
kind of wrap your head around this thing because we're we're in we're in tanks and we're going down to set up uh, the inner perimeter and we don't know if they're going to are they going to fire at us are they going to fire those big 50 cals at us are they going to try to blow us up we just had no idea what was in store were you afraid no no uh, and you know what people uh, and that's, that's kind of a it's interesting um interesting dynamic uh is that you know people what people say uh, you know and, and that's uh, military and and others that if you say you're not afraid, then then you're crazy or something's wrong with you. Um, I I was never afraid at any point, um, at any time. There were times that I had um, maybe a higher level of of anxiety uh, or a higher level of of vigilance or awareness or concern, whatever you want to call it. I don't feel like I was ever really afraid. I mean, I would have been afraid just to try to drive the tank, let alone do uh, it in that circumstance. Yeah. But it, um, yeah. and I and I think that, um, and this harkens all the way back to what we talked about at the beginning of our conversation here. That that I felt like there was always um, that that I always had um, something or somebody or. Uh, with me and 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 whatever that was that when we talk about it being the intuition the instinct and so on it's i just feel like there was that that there's always been something there with me so i don't i've never feel like i've ever been really afraid what was your feeling about how it was ultimately going to be resolved at this point well i i thought uh, the entire time is that they're going to give up and they'll work out something with the negotiators. I mean, we've the FBI had some of the top negotiators in in uh, in the country, if not the world. And uh, you know, I believe that once this negotiation process got started, that those buses that were there, that they'd all be piled onto the buses and they'd come out of there. Initially, when we went and set up on this and and the inner perimeter, there was no certainty what was going to happen, whether they were going to fire at us or whether they're going to try to blow us up or whatever that might be. But then, as it, as then we started going into day two and day three, all that time was there was this belief that they're just going to give up and they're going to come out. And they're, did most of the SWAT team feel the same way? What was the culture of that SWAT team during those days? You know, I guess it's a that's an um, and it's an interesting question because, you know, I think there becomes just a matter of, um, and I hate to be so dramatic as to call it survival because it's not necessarily survival, but it's it's just from going from this day to the next day, making it from this day to the next day, and and I said earlier I was thankful I had a pillow that was huge because I had a pillow nobody else had a pillow a lot of folks didn't have bedrolls so they're just they had nowhere to lay down or and 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 uh, you know I've always kind of been a scrounger too and I found myself a cot I got my little bedroll I got my pillow I got some books I got so I I I was relatively comfortable when there were guys that were sitting there um, you know on the back of a of a truck or on the side of the tank and and they're tired and they have 
they don't have that same luxury as I had early on. So that checklist that you had before you left Oklahoma City, did they not have that checklist? Apparently they didn't have a pillow on their checklist. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but when you yeah. when you think about something like this, you don't you're you're probably on the front end, you're not looking at it being First of all, you think probably there's somebody going to be furnishing those things uh, if we needed them and and not really thinking this thing going, you know, for days and weeks and, and in this case, 51 days. Nobody's thinking about that on a front end. There, there were hundreds and hundreds of FBI agents there, and there was the Husky rescue, rescue team that was there. So we had the, the, the elite um, SWAT teams, uh, that were there, being the hostage rescue team, and we had the top negotiators there. So we had some of the what people, what what I would suggest, are some some of the some of the best and the brightest of the FBI. Um, now, when you look at this thing in in hindsight, um, there are so many questions. There's all all types of conspiracy theories and all types of controversy surrounding it, and even when I look at photographs that I have, it just seems it it just seems like uh, a very strange thing that there was so much resource deployed on this compound. And was that necessary? I mean, was all of that necessary? And what do you think about that? You know, I, what I think about is that um, the answers in hindsight are always crystal clear. The answers at the moment are never crystal clear. And I think that the people that were making decisions were making the very best decisions that they could in the circumstance. And, and, but then, you know, we, we, we can look at history. We can study history. We can't change history. So nothing's ever going to change what happened at, at Waco on the, on the final day on April the 19th of 1993. And that place was engulfed in flame and little children burned to death in that and probably experienced, um, tremendous fright, tremendous pain ahead of that because of the tear gas and, and all of the things that were going on in that battle. And you think back about that and you think about those, those children, um, it's just, it's incredibly, incredibly sad. When, when you ask what things could have been maybe done differently, I think very hard about that because one of the things was when I mentioned when we're all in that hangar, there was this feeling of, of, of unity of together because we're all briefed up with the same information. We know the same thing and we basically we could have held hands and sang Kumbaya. I mean, it was that kind of a feeling. But I got to tell you, after every day that went by, then you'd start to see that this communication just slowly started to splinter. And, in what sense? Like and slowly less and less because there's, there was less and less uh, important communication. We got communicated with, but here's how this thing worked, is you have all the decision makers, then you have a team of negotiators, then you have these tactical teams, and you have the premier tactical team, the HRT, that are there. And it's what the, does that stand for? The hostage rescue team. Okay. And when when um, and I was I guess I kind of equate this with this old adage that if you um, give a man a hammer, he's going to pound down every standing nail. 
And when you train people uh, to use um, automatic weaponry, to, to, to be tactically sound, and to go into, quote, into battle, then it's like handing a man a hammer. And so you have to think about always, leadership has to constantly think about human nature. And that sometimes gets lost in the picture. And human, so how, how explain, in terms of what you just said, how that applied in this situation? So in this situation, when you have the, this, you have a group of negotiators and they're working to create solution. They're actually talking to people in the compound. And at some point in, the, in, in this negotiation, there were actually videos that were coming out of the uh, compound. And, and the negotiators are seeing the children. They're seeing pictures of the children, video of the children, one little girl asking for ice cream. Those of us that were out there in these tactical positions in tanks every day, um, firearms pointing towards the compound, firearms in the compound pointing at us, we're in this stalemate um, sort of situation, but but still it's incredibly adversarial because we, we see, we don't see faces, we see this nameless um, adversary in this compound is pointing a, a great big rifle at us every day. So do you think that the that the human experience of what the negotiators were going through and the sort of more tactical ammunition focused you know uh, position that you guys were in it sort of diverged the the human experience became splintered because you were sitting in tanks waiting for you know, you were doing your job as as part of the SWAT team, and the the people who were doing the negotiating were doing their job, but the human experience was different. It, does so that I, begin I th- to? So I think one of the one of the the absolute uh, for me one of the absolute lessons learned, and that and that's part of this examining history, recognizing we can't change history, but let recognizing we can learn from history, and we can learn from everything that we do, and what I left. Waco with was this complete understanding of the importance of communication and also the importance of communication in context. So that when you look at these groups of people that are out there, you've got negotiators who have a particular mission. You have tactical operators that are there that have a particular mission. You have tactical operators that have placed themselves in a context you have negotiators that have placed themselves in a particular context, and we perceive that that our positions in in a different light. So, as a tactical operator, you perceive your position as you're the guy that's the man with the hammer, and you're going to pound down nails. And you've got the the negotiators there that are trying to work a solution here. Then you have the the what we called the headshed. You have the the management and the leaders. Mm-hmm who are taking feedback, mostly from the negotiators, because the negotiators are, are the ones that are talking every day with the Davidians. But then you have the, the, the tactical leadership who, and they're in there saying, hey, you know, we got to get this thing over with. We can't stay out here forever. And it's just, then the human nature part starts coming in and, and leadership has to recognize that their context and perception so that they can communicate with them properly. 
so that they understand and they continue to understand what's important and what the mission is and how this mission is being executed rather than being influenced by tactical or negotiators. They have to be very objective, leadership does. And in this case, what is happening for us as tactical folks, the there was a tactical leader who was actually the, the HRT leader. He would then, after a daily briefing, he would come out and he would brief the rest of the, the, uh, the, the SWAT leaders who would then come out to each individual SWAT team and then brief us. So what do you think that this guy who has a hammer, what do you think he's hearing every day in these briefings? Well, he's hearing that the negotiators are giving away our positions. That these, these are these are negotiators are brothers of the badge. These are yeah. these are FBI agents. They're on your team. But we started seeing them as on a different team. That's interesting. We started seeing them, and we actually um, we had names for them that were not uh, that that were were that they definitely wouldn't have appreciated and didn't appreciate. We had signs that said they weren't allowed in our areas. Oh, negotiators. I mean, really? it, it was. It was very tense. And then so now you have a, a, a tactical leader talking to our tactical leaders, and they only hear certain things. And they hear that there's children being abused in a the compound. They hear that they're reminded that they still have these 50 cows, reminded that they've got all this ammunition, reminded that they've got all, these, all this weaponry. And then that comes to our SWAT team leader who hears select parts of that. Mm -hmm. Then he comes and briefs us, and we only hear select parts of it that children are being abused, the negotiators are giving away our positions, they're giving away the farm, and they're going to get us killed. So were you personally, having gone through this, were you frustrated and wanted to move ahead to try to resolve it more quickly and get get closure on it? And what was your... So you did you have the same view of the negotiators that was starting to develop among the um, SWAT team? So um, I I wanted I wanted this thing um, over with um, because um, I had children and the children are uh, their kids um, and they're playing soccer they're in sports they have all the things that are going on with young children and I'm missing all of that I'm missing every bit of it. And yeah. at one point, at one point, I get a, I, I, it's during the daytime, and I'm off shift, and I'm asleep, and I, I'm awakened by a phone call in the room, and it's the office in Oklahoma City, and they said that my in-laws are trying to get in touch with me, and they were trying to get in touch with my wife and I to be able to tell her, actually, that her brother died, oh. and they didn't have her office number. And I said, well, I gave her the number. And they said, well, we'd prefer if you called her. So here I am down here and, and, and four and a half hours away from where she is. And, and I how to, many days had you been in? I'd been waiting. down there probably for about three weeks at that point. Mm -hmm. and, and that was the toughest thing, one of the toughest things I've ever had to do in my life. I had to call her up, and I called another. I had called an agent that was at the office, and I asked him if he'd go down to where she was working, and then we tried to time it so that whenever I told her, he would be there to drive her home or help her, whatever she needed. But I had to call her and tell her that her brother died, and I said, Shh, "Do you want me to come home?" 
And she thought about it and she said, no, you need to be there. So you stay there and I'll take care of this. Mm. Well, that, that you're, I'm carrying that with me now every day that my wife is having to take care of that and look after the kids and look after the house. And I'm, I'm down here and we've got, and now the, the people in this compound start taking on sort of, there's a different picture that starts forming after all this time. And it was hot down there. It was cold down there. It rained down there. We got mud on our shoes and we're packing it into these tanks. We got mud on our shoes. We're packing it into our little command post. There's dirt. There's there. You, you, you don't, you can't sleep well. There's you're tired and you, your frustration level starts to go up. Yes. And then these, these, then there's these faceless adversaries in this compound. And you, and we've never, we never saw pictures of the kids. That's we never saw pictures of the of of these people that are in there. We didn't really understand or continually briefed up about their religious beliefs and what they believed and why they believed and why they did what they did. Why is it do you think that the that the negotiators lost communication with the SWAT team that there was no it, it sounds like there wasn't very much flow of information to give you a feel for the culture inside the Davidian group. The, the, the leadership is dealing with a multitude of information and, and, and stuff every day. They got to talk about getting on TV and what the message to the press is. They've got to be stressed out. What's we, we got a new attorney general coming in because Janet Reno was, it was a presidential transition and she was not yet in office when this thing started. So we're thinking, I mean, they've got all these things to think about. Well, they just see us as an asset. They yes. forget that, that there's 20 human beings from Oklahoma City that are on a SWAT team that are out here, and we have to talk to them every day and tell them, remember that you're FBI agents. Remember that we're professionals. Remember that we comport ourselves in a certain way. Remember that the, the negotiators are brothers of the badge and that they're working a different mission from you. But that communication has to happen. Well, it broke down and didn't happen. So yeah. now we're out there. We get mistrustful, distrustful. We start getting angry. Now we're angry at the HRT because we think they're prima donnas. We're angry at the at negotiators because we think they're giving us up. None of that's true. But we're in this little bubble, and the communication that's coming into us is, is limited. So what I know and learn from that is that what... What should happen is people think about human nature. They think about human beings. They think about thought. They think about what's going on with each of us out there. And they're talking to us to keep us tethered, keep us tethered to the mission, keep us. So there was a video that's out, it's on the internet of one of the women that was in a compound who mm -hmm. said that, oh, you want us to give ourselves up. And these guys are out there throwing us the finger. They're, they're mooning us. These are FBI agents. Really? And when and when if you understand human nature, because anybody's gonna look at that and say, who could be so incredibly unprofessional? How could that happen? And 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 be astonished and amazed. There's nothing astonishing or amazing about it. It's just human nature. Mm -hmm. You have to I mean, even as adults, we still have childlike instincts at times. And we get frustrated and we get tired. Um, and that's why people have to be, you have to communicate.
it, just to, to, to finish up with what happened on April 19th with the fire that occurred, how did that fire happen? So, and that's a, that's a matter of significant controversy. If you get on, if you get on the, the internet and you look at videos and you see so many so-called experts that say the FBI was firing on the compound, shooting, there's so many experts that say that the, that the FBI started the fire and you can tell because the smoke that came from the, the CS gas that was deployed. You have so many experts that can say with certainty that, well, the fact of the matter is, is there's that that there is no particular certainty, but there was uh, a special prosecutor report. They spent something like six years investigating this thing, seventeen million dollars investigating it to get those very answers, and there uh, those answers are contained in a report that should say this is this is it, this is that happened. But there are people out there that will continue from now into eternity, talking about, you know, the FBI shot kids in there, they squashed them with the tank, they did all of these things, they started the fire, they burned up. So when I left there and went home, we were called um, jackbooted thugs, baby killers, and liars. That was on the media constantly. My kids had to listen to that. And how did you cope with that and and i guess the thing that that's always the hardest is that you think about you know you see your your child sitting there watching television and then some and a news clip comes on and it's saying the fbi agents are jackbooted thugs baby killers and liars i mean it, it is hard to deal with and of course I, you know i was able to talk to my kids and i told my daughter i said she said daddy i said you you've always said that we're not to lie and did you or and then she named some of the agents that she knew did did you are you guys lying i said honey we are of the few that know the truth How many people died from the Davidian compound? Um, you know what? If you, uh, it, it's uh, they're, even those numbers are, are kind of controversial because uh, what they said in that final report is that there were uh, about eighty-two people that died, and it's mm-hmm. kind of and they caveat that by saying that that fire was so hot and so intense that um, they're not sure whether they were able to account for everybody. But at the end of the day. There were about fifty uh, something um, adults, I believe, that that died there that day, and and probably about twenty five or so children had died there that day. And the 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 hope was that I think every agent that was there, the hope was, is that the kids had somehow gotten that the that the parents would have put them in in a there's a cistern, so there was water under in in a cistern that maybe they got the kids down there and out of harm's way, that somehow that that nobody would allow their children to be to, to, to be burned to death in that building. And when um, and that was that was uh, that was 
incredibly uh, that was um, a very hard moment when 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 we knew then that there there were um, about twenty five or so kids that 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 died in that compound and 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 we were there watching it so you know that 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 we just saw them die. Do you think that protocols changed as a result of what happened there? I mean, that's an excellent question. That did protocols change in the FBI, in the law enforcement community, you know, across the board as a result of Waco? There's no reason to raid a compound. You just wait them out. And I believe that was a lesson. But I think that probably one of the most important lessons learned might have been lost on the whole thing, and that would be that that how important communication would have been, could have been, and should have been employed in it in probably a different way. But that's because the, the the look at this thing was not from the perspective of where I was sitting in a tank as Walter Lamar from Oklahoma City. The the look um, at this thing in the examination was all about the grander scale and the large picture. Agent Lamar had learned a great deal from Waco. However, when that siege ended, he didn't realize the ways in which Waco would be connected to another tragic event 24 months later on the exact same day of the year. In fact, that day in April would turn out to be a clue to the identity of a bomber. Find out how the puzzle unfolds in the last episode of this series, Diary of an FBI Agent. Coming up, part four, unraveling the mystery of the Oklahoma City bombing.